Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And this is now the conclusion of our mini-series on China under Chairman Mao. Uh, the first few years of the Cultural Revolution, to very briefly recap our previous episode, uh, were marked by intense protests and unrest. So from 1966 until 1968, a radical youth movement known as the Red Guard did everything from invading people's homes to warring against itself, all in the name of revolution. Art, artifacts, and other cultural treasures were destroyed under the idea that they were bourgeois, counter-revolutionary, or imperial. And at the same time, the Chinese Communist Party chairman, Mao Zedong, undertook a coordinated effort to purge his adversaries and his perceived adversaries out of the Chinese part, Chinese Communist Party and the government. In 1969, the tone and direction of the Cultural Revolution really shifted dramatically. All those people who had been purged and imprisoned and sent to the countryside to work or put into forced labor and re-education camps had really made room in the party for Mao to replace them with his allies. And the Red Guard themselves had also been sent to the country, getting them out of the way and quelling all of their violent activities. With many of the existing art and artifacts destroyed, the nation was also primed to create new work. So for the next seven years until Mao's death, he, tra- he tried to remake the government and the country after his own vision. And we mentioned uh, Mao Zedong's wife, Jiang Qing, in the previous episode. And she was from Shanghai. And before marrying Mao, she had been an actress. She was working in the Ministry of Culture prior to the start of the Cultural Revolution. And she was one of the people who said the revolution should specifically address Chinese culture. To that end, Jiang had a hand in commissioning, planning, and producing all kinds of new theatrical, musical, and artistic projects. These celebrated the themes of the revolution. They glorified the the proletariat as heroes, and they portrayed intellectuals, landlords, rightists, and capitalists as the villains. They incorporated the work of all kinds of other artists, creating costumes, promotional materials, and the like. These new works also incorporated some Western instruments and techniques. This seems kind of counterintuitive since the whole focus of this was to to be authentically Chinese. But by selecting exactly what Western influences to incorporate and by planning out exactly how and when those uh, influences would be incorporated, Jiang was able to manage the influence of Western culture rather than having it just roll over and drown out everything Chinese. Uh, This was also the inspiration for new theater and art. A huge part of the cultural aspect of the revolution were eight, quote, model operas. And these were actually created during the Cultural Revolution's first tumultuous years, but they really proliferated after that. Five of them were Beijing operas that told stories set in the relatively recent past, and these stories had revolutionary themes. This was a really big departure from the Beijing opera tradition, which had generally relied on morality tales based on China's dynastic history for its subject matter. There were also two ballets and a symphonic work. These pieces were performed all over China in a way that was standardized, down to exactly how the costumes should be made. 
Often, attendance was actually mandatory, and the old traditional operas were banned. Now, these were heavily documented. There was like a giant book that was everything, yeah. not just the script, but what the costume should look like and what the music should be like and how it should be performed. One thing to note in these new works is that gender equality was a really frequent theme. Although the Cultural Revolution itself did not use the word feminist or any other analog to the word feminist, many of the model operas featured resourceful, empowered heroines who made their own decisions. So these model operas uh, continued to be performed for years, and they were actually made into film versions in 1970. The drive to create new art went beyond just these model operas. People were encouraged to write, paint, and otherwise create new works that celebrated China, Mao, and the revolution. New periodicals began to come out in 1972. And new Chinese-made feature films started to come out in 1974. There were four national fine arts exhibitions between 1972 and 1975, with almost 8 million people attending the exhibits in Beijing. That was really record-breaking in terms of attendance at artistic exhibitions. Because so many cultural artifacts had been destroyed and so many influences on art and literature and, and drama had been weeded out during the 1966 to 1968 years, a lot of this new work picked up an aesthetic and themes from the Cultural Revolution itself. Costumes and fashions drew more from the Red Guard's utilitarian uniforms than on Chinese fashion trends from the past. As a general trend, clothing and artwork took on kind of a militarized look and feel. As another general trend, uh, this had an overall homogenizing effect on Chinese culture. As we mentioned at the very, very top of this series, China is home to many diverse peoples, each with their unique cultural aspects. But the standardized, mass-produced art and entertainment of the Cultural Revolution glossed over a lot of that and created, at surface level, uh, an overall unified culture. Now, although this was called the Cultural Revolution, a lot of what went on was really overtly political and had to do with the government itself. And we will talk about some of that after a brief word from a sponsor. And now, uh, back to China and the Cultural Revolution. So, just like the purges had primed the population for the cultural shifts that were to come, they had also primed the government for a near-total shift in leadership. While the Chinese Communist Party's Ninth Congress convened in 1969, many of its members were newly promoted by Mao to replace people who had been purged between 1966 and 1968. The Ninth Congress also selected its new Central Committee, almost entirely remaking it with new members. Only about 30% of the committee's new members had also served on the Eighth Committee. Like the party in general, this committee was almost entirely new blood. Lin Biao was also named as the vice chairman of the Communist Party. He was to be Mao's successor. However, he overstepped his power pretty quickly, uh, instituting martial law and saying it was due to clashes along the Soviet border. Mao, threatened by what was essentially a power grab, started trying to countermaneuver against Lin's efforts, along with uh, Zhou Enlai, the prime minister. Things came to a head in 1971 when Lin, or possibly lower-level officials who were loyal to him, organized a coup against Mao, which included an assassination attempt. There's some evidence that it might really have been Lin's son and other supporters rather than Lin himself who did the plotting. It all failed after Lin's daughter informed Zhou of what was going on. 
Regardless, Lynn and family apparently tried to flee to the Soviet Union, but the plane they were on crashed on September 13th of 1971. And there's some speculation here, too, uh, that they were drugged and put onto the plane, which was then crashed deliberately to get rid of them. In the wake of the coup and Lynn's death, Mao was afraid that the incident would rattle people's confidence in the government. I mean, at this point, he had purged all of his detractors. This guy was like the the next in line under him, essentially. And people were very curious about what in the world had happened for somebody that senior to, to go rogue that way. Mao canceled a National Day celebration and parade that were to take place that October. And then he, along with Zhou, purged Lin's allies and advisors all out of the government. Authorities tried to come up with good explanations for why Lin, who had been Mao's close confidant and a central part of the government, would have betrayed him. But this whole process was really secretive, with the people at large waiting for answers and gradually becoming disenchanted with the way things were happening as they did. Uh, While he was still in favor with the party, Lin's calligraphy had been part of statues of Mao. So there would be a statue of Mao with this calligraphy that was in Lin's uh, calligraphy writing that just had statements about what a great leader Mao was. Once Lin had died and this whole scandal had come to light, these inscriptions were stripped away from all of the statues. All part of the purging. Uh, the Tenth Party Congress convened in 1973. And unlike the Ninth Congress, which had replaced about 70% of the surviving Eighth Party Congress members with new members, the Tenth Congress had included a lot of previous members who had been, quote, rehabilitated in work camps. About 40 of the new Central Committee members fit this description. So these are people who had been purged, sent to work camps, and now were allowed back in to the fold uh, because they had been rehabilitated. One of these, quote, rehabilitated officials was Deng Xiaoping, who had been exiled during the earlier years of the revolution. He was named vice prime minister and was tasked with working with Prime Minister Zhou Enlai on a modernization program. And at this point, it was clear to both Mao and Zhou that they were getting older and needed someone with experience to lead China after they were gone. By this point, Mao had experienced a stroke and Zhou had cancer. In spite of his past, Deng seemed like the best candidate. Zhou was actually more moderate than Mao. He had been one of the people who had protected some of China's cultural artifacts that were at risk earlier in the revolution. And he had also been campaigning for pretty reasonable modernizations in agriculture, industry, science and technology, as well as national defense. So it looked like uh, things, you know, had a pretty strong chance of returning to relative normalcy after all those years of chaos. But Mao's wife, Jiang Qing, had really become a lot more radical than he was. She and three of her biggest supporters became known as the Gang of Four, and they worked against Zhou, especially as it became clear that he was not well. The balance of power really teetered between Zhou's pretty reasonable, moderate way of doing things and Jiang's very more aggressive, revolutionary, radical way. And this went on until Zhou died in January of 1976. In the protests that followed, led in part by Jiang and the Gang of Four, Deng was purged once again. A few months later, in September of 1976, Mao died as well, and Jiang and the Gang of Four really made a power grab. 
Soon thereafter, a coalition that included the military, the police, and political figures rounded up and purged the Gang of Four. Deng returned from his exile and took the reins of the Chinese government, and he actually remained in power until 1992, and he died in 1997. In 1981, the Gang of Four, as well as Lin Biao's top generals, were all put on trial and blamed for everything that had gone wrong. The trial was televised, and it was very public. The charges included persecuting 727,420 people and killing 34,274. There were 10 total defendants. Jiang Qing was sentenced to death, although this was later changed to a life in prison. Jiang committed suicide in 1991. Surprisingly, considering all that had gone on through years of purges, and also very reasonably, uh, Deng did exactly what Mao had feared before the revolution started. He incorporated elements of a free market, free enterprise, capitalist economy into China's very planned economy. Uh, and before we talk about a couple of things, one is there were some actual positive developments during the Cultural Revolution, and the other is the aftermath of what happened afterward. Before we talk about that, let's have a brief word from another sponsor. And now, let's keep talking about Chinese history. Let's get back to a few of actual, legitimately positive things that did happen during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, Some people interpret all of this as that uh, Deng came in after Mao had died and really started modernizing China. And for a long time, this was even the official account from China of what had happened. Uh, For a while after Mao's death, it was extremely uh, poor form to comment on him in a positive way at all. But really, a lot of the seeds of China's future growth were planted during the Cultural Revolution, as destructive and chaotic as it was. During the revolution, people were guaranteed food, clothing, and education, fuel, and a funeral. These were called the five guarantees. China also expanded its healthcare system and made healthcare much more affordable to a lot of people. About two million peasants were given basic medical, medical training and they became known as barefoot doctors. They were sort of like EMTs. More hospitals were built out in the country and by the end of the Cultural Revolution, Two-thirds of the hospital beds in China were in rural areas, which really helped because that's where 80% of the population lived. It also expanded school programs for young people in rural areas, and it put laws into place to encourage gender equality. And unfortunately, Deng did roll back a lot of these reforms after the Cultural Revolution was over. And the Cultural Revolution was also a time where a great deal of research work was taking place. Medical research during these years led to the discovery of artemisinin. This is a plant-derived medicine that had been used in other forms in China for a thousand years. But this research led to it being refined significantly into an effective treatment for malaria. Literacy really improved in rural areas where illiteracy had been just completely rampant. And the number of libraries, museums, cultural clubs, and cinemas grew. Life expectancy at birth also grew. It had been 35 years in 1949, and that was 65 by 1980. 
Many of the officials who had been purged were eventually returned to offices and sometimes given preferential treatment or preferential treatment for their children as a make good on what had happened to them. Much of the confiscated property was returned as well, with more than 30,000 unclaimed works of art being put on display in the hope of finding their owners. However, the pretty much every historian looking at the the Cultural Revolution as a big picture uh, puts it into the not a good experience for China category. Writing for The Guardian, Tanya Brannigan called it, quote, a lost decade of tragedy and waste. In 1981, the CCP called the Cultural Revolution, quote, the most severe setback and the heaviest losses suffered by the party, the state and the people since the founding of the People's Republic. And they also put the blame squarely on Mao Zedong. That's another thing that a lot of times the West gets wrong about it. There's sort of this perception that there has been a constant and unending deification of Mao Zedong and that China has never really acknowledged uh, what happened, which is absolutely the opposite of what we just said. Yeah, could not be further from the truth. <laughs> right. At the end of the revolution, China was still very, very poor. But since it had eliminated a whole class of more wealthy people, this is one of those uh, blessing and a curse kind of things. There was a lot less class division and a lot less wealth disparity. The Great Leap Forward and the consequent famine had been hardest on China's laborers, particularly rural laborers working on farms. The Cultural Revolution, though, was hardest on the affluent, so the educated who were sent to the countryside to work and learn from common people. And the people who had the money and the means to become targets of the Red Guard were also significantly impacted. So while the Great Leap Forward had killed millions of people, had most who had mostly been on a more or less subsistence level existence the cultural revolution killed people who had the money to own works of art or had otherwise become suspect so like the first tragedy had had killed poor farmers and the second one killed intellectuals and teachers and people who had money people who were between the ages of 15 and 25 during the cultural revolution really missed out on having an education. High schools came back by 1967, but universities did not begin admitting people again until 1970. There was also a really extreme and negative impact on minorities, both in terms of being targeted by the Red Guard and the purges and by having their cultural artifacts destroyed. Previously popular artists and musicians gave up their work rather than being forced into propaganda for the new regime. And then at a more basic social level, family members turned on each other and began turning in their family members, their neighbors, you know, people they had previously trusted uh, for criticizing Mao. Sometimes not even because that had happened, but in an effort to protect their own appearance as someone who supported Mao. About 1.5 million people died during the Cultural Revolution. Many, many more went to prison or were tortured or beaten. Some had their property seized, as we mentioned. 36 million were harassed or persecuted in some way. Even so, even with those numbers, which are really pretty astronomical, uh, there were not a lot of specifics known about the Cultural Revolution until more recently. 
People who grew up during the revolution and were members of the Red Guard are now in their 60s or 70s, and many of them have started to talk more openly about what happened so that the history of it is not lost. So we're sort of seeing the same kind of thing as uh, people who lived through the famine, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, wanting to tell the story of the famine so that the uh, the history of it would not be lost to the world forever. And in some cases, there are people that want to atone for their actions during the Cultural Revolution. So as they're nearing end of life and they're taking stock, they're trying to make good on what they feel they've done wrong in their lives. Yeah, I read just some really heartbreaking stories that are basically boiled down to, I was 15 years old and I turned in my mother. Like, yeah. So there are just a whole lot of stories of people who have carried around this um remorse and regret uh, sometimes having caused the deaths of their family members for decades after this was over um, is a horribly sad story. It is a... Yeah, Tracy, why do you I keep know. picking sad <laughs> Well, and what's weird to me, the Cultural Revolution has been on my list of things that I've wanted to talk about pretty much since coming on the podcast. It is a a, a thing that I knew very little actual detail about beforehand. I feel like most of my knowledge of the Cultural Revolution was in uh, some college courses that talked about Mao's Little Red Book, right? which is a tiny piece of it. Um, and then the Chinese language movie Farewell, My Concubine. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's not a lot to go on. And I had the sense that it was just heartbreaking and disruptive and upsetting and... Uh, at the same time, when, as as it grew into this miniseries, which is the first time that I have tried to tackle something that ambitious in the podcast, uh, the further I got into it, the more I was like, why did I do this? Um, so I really hope that those of you who are listening have gotten something out of this, this four-part now series, um, because, wow, it was a lot to tackle. I am not going to do another four-part series for a long while. Because you're crazy. Uh, do you have some fun listener mail to offset the sadness of the day? It is much more fun. I'm not going to read all of it, but it is from Faith, who wrote to us about uh, our History of Colors episode, which is one of the things I did to break up like the extremely distressing topics I had been researching for a while. Uh, so Faith says, longtime listener, but this is the first time I've really felt compelled to write in. Thank you so much for the excellent episode on the History of Color. There are, as I'm sure you now know, whole libraries of material on various aspects of color and on individual shades that can draw you down any number of research paths, like Goethe's beef with Newton or the history and influence of Owen Jones's grammar of ornament, not to mention public health and ecology. See Dan Fagan's Tom's River and, of course, colonialization and global trade. Uh, as a brief aside, I actually originally... <laughs> in the introduction, had this whole thing about what Newton thought color was and what all of these other people afterward thought color was. And it became, number one, really long. And number two, not really germane to the direction the episode really wound up going, which was about more pigments and dyes than the theory of color. Um, another fun fact to return to the letter about the development of synthetic dyes is how it intersected with that of artificial lighting in the larger context of the Industrial Revolution. In effect, 
the industrialization of light enabled and responded to the industrialization of color. That is a fascinating observation that we had not thought about, or I had not thought about at all. Yeah. And then Faith says, just one more. Aniline dyes also proved useful for staining cells on microscope slides, thereby aiding the bacteriological revolution. Uh, that was a thing that I thought that I had mentioned in the episode, but I think maybe I did not. So thank you, Faith, for writing into us with all of this. Uh, if you would like to write to us, we are a history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can write to us about this or any of our other episodes. You can send suggestions. Please do not suggest another four-part series because it was really hard. Um, we're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com and we are on Pinterest. We have a new store where you can buy shirts and iPhone cases and stuff like that. And that is at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com. You can come to our parent company's website, which is howstuffworks.com. And you can search the word Mao in the search bar. And you will find a really interesting article called, Why is there an underground city beneath Beijing? Uh, that underground city was started while Mao was in office. And you can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, and you can find show notes, all of the episodes, an archive of everything we have ever done. Uh, so come and visit us at mistinhistory.com or howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 